0: From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Now that children ages 5 to 11 are eligible for COVID-19 vaccination, I'm talking with a pediatric infectious disease expert, Dr. Joe Domikowski. He's a professor of pediatrics and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and he's also the principal investigator of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine trial underway at Upstate that was one of the first sites in the world to enroll children under five years of age. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Domitkowski. Thanks, Amber. Thanks very much. Now, parents have a lot of questions, so let's make it clear that we're talking about the vaccine that, w- that was authorized for use in children 5 to 11. So, was the lower age set at 5 just to coincide with the age kids start school? Or is there a big difference in the bodies of 3 and 4 year olds versus 5 year olds?
1: well the emergency use authorization vaccine that was approved is the Pfizer formulation and the clinical trials have a cut off a younger age cut off of 5 years that will change when we start hearing about the data coming from the clinical trials for Moderna where the young age cut off was at 6 both trials continue to enroll kids under the age of 5 and 6 but we don't have those data yet for EUA
0: So it's just being done differently by different vaccine makers.
1: It's a fairly arbitrary cutoff, but it's also based on some prior experience with age groups that do need different dosing regimens when compared to adults.
0: All right. So the one right now, Pfizer that's available now, is this the same vaccine that adults have already had access to, Um, or is there a difference?
1: The vaccine that is emergency use authorized for 5 to 11. Is exactly the same as the 1 that's emergency use authorized for 12 to 16 and approved now fully approved for use at 16 and over, but the, the subtle difference is. The dosing the amount of antigen or immunizing agent in the vaccine is one third the concentration. So the adult dose is 30 micrograms delivered as a single dose. And then a second dose is given three weeks later for the five to 11 year olds. The first dose is 10 micrograms, one third, the adult dose, a second dose of 10 micrograms is then given three weeks later.
0: And it doesn't matter how large or the weight of the child, any, uh, any child from five to 11 gets the same 10 micrograms. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. The way the clinical vaccine trial was developed was the age cutoffs, not by weight. And if we look at other examples for pediatric vaccines, we do similar strategies for vaccines that we use all the time where we use age uh, cutoff breaks for changing the dosing formulation for other vaccines as well. So it's, it's something that pediatricians are certainly accustomed to.
0: Now, do you expect a Moderna and a Johnson and Johnson vaccine to be authorized for those under age 18 anytime soon?
1: The um, emergency use authorization discussion for the Moderna formulation is on um, a temporary hold while more safety information is being collected. That a Moderna strategy clinical trial is just slightly behind the Pfizer formulation. But I do think that ultimately, we will have uh, pediatric formulations for both Pfizer and Moderna starting at six months of age. For Johnson & Johnson, they have started some very early phase pediatric trials, but I'm not sure they will continue on. I think they need to see how well the, the market share is and how much uptake there is based on the mRNA vaccines that are uh, several months, if not a year, ahead of the efforts
0: at J&J. Now you use the word safety, and I think that's the main thing for parents. How do we know that these vaccines are safe for our children?
1: Well, we have so far safety data on approximately 4,000 uh, 5 to 11 year olds that have been immunized in the clinical vaccine trials, and tens of thousands of those individuals are 12 and older who have um, received the adult formulation of the vaccine. And the side effect profile that we're seeing in the 5 to 11 year olds is very similar to what we see with vaccines that we use every day that we've used for decades in these kids. So, some injection site reactions. Some low grade fevers that are self limiting they last maybe for a day or 2. Most of the people that have gotten the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines as adults have experienced similar side effects. And I can tell you that the rates of those side effects using this lower dose for the 5 to 11 year olds is a smaller percentage of the total vaccinated. So I think 1 of the benefits of going to the lower dose for the kids. Is that we're seeing a much better tolerated uh, reaction profile. And we already know that there's no trade off in the form of how well we can induce the antibody responses in those kids. So there's no trade off. The antibody responses are just as good, even though the dose is one-third.
0: You mentioned a lot of the temporary sort of side effects. Are there any serious side effects that were noticed or that parents should be on the lookout for?
1: The only serious side effect that has been noted so far with either of the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer formulation or the Moderna formulation, is this very rare side effect of myocarditis within a week or so of receiving Usually the 2nd dose, and that was noticed 1st in young adults, mostly young adult men. The 1st findings came out of Israel, where they launched a vaccine program for 7Million of their population and that what they were seeing in Israel was an uptick in the reported cases of myocarditis. So this led to some very active surveillance for myocarditis in the adult trial in the United States for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And now, of course, there's much interest in looking to see if this side effect ever occurs in young children. So far from the clinical trials, I can tell you that in the 5 to 11 group, there has not been any cases of myocarditis in the vaccine trials. Of course, we've been only vaccinating starting today uh, in the 5 to 11 group. So we may see some very, very rare reports of myocarditis in that age group going forward. In each case, those um, individuals that develop myocarditis from the vaccine. It's typically a very brief mild condition. Sometimes hospitalization is necessary for some treatment. But the hospitalizations are also brief and there have been no deaths associated with vaccine induced myocarditis. But I can tell you that the rates of myocarditis from active COVID infection are at least 10 times the rates that we see. From the vaccine and death is a known complication when it occurs from the the wild type infection.
0: All right. Well, good to know. I want to ask you about the urgency in vaccinating children. Is it true that children are at low risk for getting seriously ill from COVID?
1: As a general population, if we compare the 28 million children that are age 5 to 11 in the United States, as a group, they are at low risk for serious consequences of COVID-19 infection when we compare them to older adults, especially older adults with risk factors that we know. But I can tell you that we've seen dozens of kids hospitalized with COVID, especially the the young teenagers or adolescents who have underlying risk factors, such as asthma or being um, overweight. And while those kids generally do better than the adults do and mortality is low, uh, they end up in the hospital often for a week or longer. There have been about 100 reported cases of COVID deaths in Children in the US so far, since the pandemic started and compared to the death numbers in adults, that's an impressively low number, but a single death in a child is unacceptable, especially when we have a vaccine to prevent this infection. The other issue related to children that doesn't appear to occur in adults. Is that following COVID infection, even those infections that are very mild, or we don't even know about um, a week or 2 later a very small subset of those kids will end up with a post-infectious inflammatory condition that we refer to as MIS-C or multi-system inflammatory condition of childhood. This is a life-threatening inflammatory condition. We get those kids in the hospital right away and we are challenged to quiet down their inflammation. This is a very difficult condition to treat. And I do know of one MIS-C related death that we had locally. Um, So this, this is not something that that should be trivialized. We really need to pay attention that uh, while children are much less likely to suffer the severe consequences of COVID compared with adults, the morbidity and even the mortality is significant enough to warrant widespread vaccination of every single person who's eligible.
0: Well, I've also heard that COVID-19 has become one of the top 10 causes of deaths among children, even though it's rare that it's one of the top 10 causes um, among children um, ages five to 11. Could widespread vaccination of this population change that? Would it make an impact?
1: Absolutely. We know that prior to use of influenza vaccines, for example, that influenza related mortality was in the several hundred to five or 600 range in a particularly bad flu season in children. And now we, from year to year, If we see more than 80 or 90 deaths in children from influenza, it's an unusually severe year. So already we've identified COVID with these 100 cases as being uh, more likely to cause death than something that we're much more familiar with that, thankfully, is also vaccine preventable.
0: Now, what do you say to parents who are concerned about how quickly the vaccines seem to have been developed?
1: Um, It didn't seem very quick to me. (laughs) I've been doing the (laughs) clinical trials, but yes, I I do see their uh, point from the outside looking in. It appears that this got uh, rushed. But remember that the adult trials started about a year before the pediatric trials were even um, designed to allow for early phase 1 enrollment. So there was substantial amount of safety data um, in 16 years and older that we relied on as we started immunizing in younger and younger um, populations in the clinical trial efforts. The efforts that we started here for the phase two, three, which are the advanced efficacy type placebo control trials, um, they started in June and it's October. So that seems really fast compared to any other vaccine study that we do. The two differences here are that when a when a new vaccine is being investigated, typically it has to go through the full phase 1 series of trials. Then there's a stop. The FDA looks at the phase 1 data and then makes a. A, a decision about allowing to go to phase 2 or to phase 2, 3. That stop can be a year long and it can really slow the progress down. Uh, the difference here was that phase 1, 2 and 3 were all put together as part of the same protocol. And very carefully evaluating safety on a day to day basis as new information came in, and we were prepared to stop enrollment in the trial at a moment's notice. If there was a single event that was considered vaccine associated, that was severe. If there was a single death related to the vaccine that was going to shut everything down right away. And then there were softer criteria for the seriousness of the side effects that were being seen. And in fact, as we were dose selecting for each age group in the younger um, ages, we saw a little bit too much fever in the 5 to 11 year olds that got close to the adult dose. So, 20 micrograms or even 30 micrograms, they had a little too much side effect reactions. Not that it was severe, but it was so common that we thought "It, it doesn't make sense to provide a vaccine for a population like children, where we're going to see fever in almost every single one of them. So, how can we um, figure out what the dose needed is that can achieve the same result with the same antibody responses and the same efficacy that we already know for adults? And that's how the 10 micrograms was decided. And I can already tell you that the the dose for the six month up to the five year olds is three micrograms. So that's going to be one tenth of the adult dose. That's how impressive the uh, the profiles are, when we look at them one by one, much better safety as we get younger and younger with lower and lower doses, but without any um, trade-off as far as the antibodies that are being produced in response to the vaccine.
0: You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joseph Domikowski. He's a professor of pediatrics and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and he's giving us some straight talk about how the COVID-19 vaccine works for kids ages five to 11. Let me ask you about the vaccine trials and whether they revealed any concerns about the vaccine affecting a child's development through puberty or a child's future fertility.
1: Yeah, that's a a great point because very early on, there were basic research scientists looking at animal models and mm, proteins that are expressed on the surface of placental cells that seemed to very weakly cross-react with the antibodies that we make when we have COVID infection or when we use a COVID vaccine. So there was this basic science hypothesis that we could interfere with placental development if we have antibodies that are directed against those placental proteins. Well, it turns out that um, in, in, it was important to study it, but it turns out that those antibodies are so weakly attracted to those particular cross reacting proteins in the placenta that they don't really bind much at all. So it ends up being a non concern, unfortunately got translated in in some of the late um, literature and some of the, the social media as uh, indicative that we may have some problems with puberty or fertility and those types of things. Uh, If you go back to the source where the idea came from, it's easy to prove that wrong already.
0: Okay. Now, are the vaccines appropriate for children with compromised immune systems or children that have chronic health conditions?
1: Yes. So, of course, we want to um, protect those who are most at risk um, most carefully. So, are the vaccines that we have or the one for the um, Pfizer formulation for the five to 11 year olds that now has authorization for use, is it appropriate for those immune compromised patients or medically complex patients? Well, in the clinical trials, those particular groups of children were excluded, particularly because we know that in general, they respond less well to all vaccines. And we wanted a real world look at how well these vaccines did at producing antibodies in the general population. So the the corollary is that we expect these vaccines to work reasonably well in those medically complex patients, but they may not do what we expect them to do in otherwise healthy kids. And that is a trade off that we always take in children and in adults. And it's one of the reasons why now, um, if, if you're following the, the recommendations for boosters, that booster vaccines for adults that are transplant recipients, talk about immune compromised, right? That population um, really has a very compromised ability to respond to things that are trying to come and infect them or to vaccines. And in that situation, it's clear that for adults with you know, transplants, we need to revaccinate them mul- with multiple boosters. Uh, currently the, the total regimen is four doses, but it won't surprise me if that goes up. So, when we talk about children who are compromised as far as their immune system goes, or they're medically complex, maybe they have a trach or they need a a ventilator at night in order to, um, to maintain their breathing. Those are among the highest risk for morbidity or death from COVID infection. So they should be first in line for vaccination. We should be doing everything that we can to protect them, social distancing, masking, making sure the people around them are vaccinated, especially if they have healthier immune systems. We don't want to bring the virus to those kids. And, of course, vaccinating the kids in the hope that their immune systems are healthy enough to at least give them some level of protection.
0: So what you just said pretty much applies to adults, too, that have health conditions that they still have to take care, whether they're vaccinated or not. They still have to use common sense and the the social distancing and the masking just to protect themselves still.
1: Absolutely. Now, there there are a subset of vaccines that we call live vaccines. Most of them are live viral vaccines, meaning they're weakened viruses that are very similar to the virus that causes the infection, like measles is a good example. Chickenpox is another good example. Those vaccines, even though they're weakened vaccines, because they're still live, they are not appropriate to give to our very immune compromised patients, because they may not even be able to fight off that very weakened vaccine strain. But for the COVID vaccines, none of them have been developed as live vaccines. So we don't have to consider the live vaccine. Issue as far as a contraindication to receiving vaccines for those who have immune compromised conditions. In fact, those are the patients that should be at the top of the list and prioritize to get the vaccines themselves.
0: Are there any children who should not get the vaccine?
1: The only absolute contraindication to receiving the EUA uh, vaccine, the Pfizer formulation, 10 micrograms, is a known allergy to a vaccine component. And thankfully, these mRNA vaccines are the simplest biochemically, the simplest vaccines that we use across the board. They have RNA in them, and they have some cholesterol-like uh, fatty lipid particles to protect the mRNA from being degraded before we inject it as a vaccine into an individual. That's it. The rest is just some salts and buffers that all of us are exposed to every day when we have a Gatorade or drink drink drinking water. So they're very unlikely for individuals to be allergic to one of those lipid components. Um, but there are a, a very, very small number of individuals who have received those types of lipids in another medication, or even who receive a single dose, who have an acute severe allergic reaction to it, who should never receive another dose of that particular formulation. Since the um, formulation of the J and J vaccine is quite different, it is often an alternative if we do have someone who can't receive one of the RNA vaccines. For now, that's limited to adults, but hopefully one day, it'll be extended to children as well.
0: Now, what about a child who was sick with COVID or who tested positive before? Do they still need to be vaccinated?
1: Absolutely, yes. And the data for this are becoming more and more clear that immunity from natural infection is nowhere as good as the immunity that's achieved following two doses of mRNA vaccines for children or for adults. And ironically, the people that are best protected Who are immunized are those who were infected with COVID before they started their vaccine series. So that's an even added incentive in my mind to say, wow, you can really be even better protected for a longer period of time if you already had COVID and now you're gonna get your two dose mRNA vaccine series, Pfizer or uh, Moderna. Those individuals now clearly show that their longevity or their durability of protection is going to be for many months longer than those of us who weren't infected before we started the vaccine series. It's great information. It's really carefully described.
0: So, how soon after a child is vaccinated are they protected? And they need the two dose series. So, that's they're three weeks apart, right?
1: Correct. So, if they get their first dose today, they would get their A 2nd dose right before Thanksgiving, um, 3 weeks from now, and then 2 weeks after that 2 dose series, they're considered protected. They're considered fully vaccinated. Whether or not boosters will be recommended based on the clinical trial data that we're continuing to to gather uh, is still an unanswered question, but we will have an answer for the community once we get to that point, because the clinical vaccine trials are several months ahead of the emergency use authorization community availability for the five to 11 year olds.
0: Can children get the COVID-19 vaccine at the same time they get other childhood vaccines?
1: So the advisory committee on immunization practices, this is the advisory committee to the centers for disease control. Um, This is the group that met on November 2nd of, of this year. To basically recommend that COVID vaccine be used in children five to eleven. Now that it was emergency use authorized by the FDA, so the ACIP has stated that other recommended vaccines can be given can be given uh, safely at the same time the COVID vaccine is administered. This is based on limited amount of data because we didn't do that during the clinical vaccine trials uh intentionally, but some of those kids did get vaccines mm, sort of on the side, even though they weren't supposed to in the vaccine trial. Uh, so based on what we know about vaccinology in general, there's very few instances where all of the vaccines that an individual is due for cannot be given at that same visit. So the ACIP is using that historical information to provide this guidance, completely understanding that Doing so offers a level of um, logistical convenience and also will improve both our immunizations uh, rates for COVID and for influenza, because spacing them out or doing them at different times means that we start losing some of those. Kids to having 1 or the other full series of vaccination. So the current recommendation is, yes, COVID. Vaccine can be given along with influenza vaccine at the same time in a different injection spot and other vaccines that are also necessary could also be considered at the same time. The downside of doing so is that if there are moderate or severe side effects, it's unclear which of the vaccines that were given has caused the side effect. So in children who have a history of mm, maybe having excessive swelling or injection site reactions in response to other vaccines, it might be better to space these out and give the COVID vaccine separately and independently so that Uh, vaccine-specific side effects can be determined for the future.
0: Now, I know we talked about the dosage of the vaccine being about a third or 10 micrograms for kids from age 5 to 11 compared with the adults that get the 30. And we talked about size, but let me ask you this. If a person has a large 11-year-old who's turning 12 next month, should they just wait a month to get the full dose? Or should they vaccinate now
1: my recommendation in that situation is to go forward with the 10 microgram dose. Times 2, 3 weeks apart and the reason I say that is. That we know the side effect profile in the 12 to 16 year olds from the adult dose, the 30 microgram dose that's emergency use authorized for 12 to 16. Is more reactogenic than the 10 microgram dose is for the 5 to 11 year olds meaning it causes more side effects, injection site reactions, more fever, a higher percentage of those kids will will end up with those things. The FDA asks both Pfizer and Moderna to do an extension of the safety study for the clinical trials that we're involved with now, looking specifically at a lower dose for 12 to 30 years old. So we're not just stopping in the teenage age group. Um, These clinical trials are going from 12 up to 30, where a 10 microgram dose is now being evaluated for exactly the same reason. Can we bring that dose down to 10 micrograms without trading off how well it works and thereby reduce the, the tolerability profile, reduce the percentage of those individuals having moderate side effects. And I'm going to predict that we start soon using a 10 microgram dose as a two dose series for many individuals, at least through the teenage years. We have to wait for the formal clinical trial results, but it won't surprise me at all. And that's why I would recommend that um, an 11 year old soon turning 12, even if they're not a large 11 year old, uh, go ahead and get vaccinated under the current EUA 10 microgram dose regimen.
0: All right, well, let's talk a little bit more about what the vaccine provides to children. If a child is vaccinated, can they still be infected with COVID-19?
1: Yes, there's no doubt that none of the vaccines that we use for anything are 100% effective. There's differences in immune responses for many, many different reasons, but there's always going to be a small percentage of individuals that just aren't fully protected. Now, vaccinology tells us, the science tells us, and experience tells us that those who are vaccinated if they do get a breakthrough infection will have a much milder course and be less likely to be hospitalized for example or have a severe complication from the infection
0: well for children who get vaccinated for most children who get vaccinated if they are exposed to COVID 19 does the fact that they're vaccinated is that going to prevent them from spreading the virus to other people
1: well the the Clinical trial data that we have so far, so the purest data um, for the clinical trial participants, uh, one-third of them got placebo, meaning they didn't get active vaccine at all. Two-thirds of them got vaccine. At three months after their second dose in the clinical trial, there were 16 total cases of COVID infection documented in the placebo group, which is, again, one-third of the total enrolled, And in the vaccinated group, there are only three, so 91%, almost 91% efficacy at preventing infection altogether. And if you don't get infected, you're not going to spread it to someone else. Will those few that do have breakthrough infections um, have enough virus replication and have sort of respiratory hygiene. That's uh, sloppy enough, if you will, um, that they can be transmitting that infection sure but it's much less likely than a child who's never been vaccinated who's replicating very very high amounts of virus and you know coughing or sneezing and those individuals are going to easily transmit especially the delta variant
0: do we know how well this vaccine is going to protect against future variants
1: we don't because we don't know what variants are going to emerge um this virus is um you know kind of tricky we have to try to keep up with it and watch it very carefully. The, the virologic testing that's being done is molecular and it's being followed and tracked to try to predict what variants might emerge, especially variants that could evade the protection provided by the current vaccine strategies. Luckily, uh, the mRNA vaccine uh, production process is simple enough compared to every other vaccine that's being made for other reasons that changing the mRNA in that vaccine is fairly straightforward and simple so that we can use a change or a mutation in our vaccine to change the way our antibodies are made so that it's directed specifically against a mutant that we can't currently provide protection for. So it it won't be done over the course of two or three years like we would expect for a different type of vaccine strategy, but we're talking about within a couple of months, we could have a a new formulation or an added mRNA subgroup of subspecies in the vaccine to provide that extra protection on top of the current antibodies that we're already making from the widespread Delta variant.
0: That's good to know. Now, kids who get vaccinated, once um, they're fully vaccinated, can they safely interact with grandparents? Can they go out and sort of start living life again?
1: we have to look at both sides, so we need to make sure that those grandparents are also vaccinated. And if those family members are now vaccinated. I say, let those families come together as long as nobody is feeling ill, you know, if anybody's feeling sick, it's not a good idea to be hanging around with uh, folks who are older, especially the more frail elderly who have um, comorbidities, other medical conditions underlying and that's just good common sense. Even before the pandemic, right? So. I would say that the the way this vaccine works, especially in kids, that we can finally let those kids unmask and spend time with the grandparents as long as everyone in that group has been uh, fully immunized.
0: Well, before we wrap up, can you tell us where things stand with a vaccine for children under the age of five? I know you're involved in trials for that, but can you predict how soon things might wrap up?
1: Sure. Yes, it's um, very exciting. So we have been involved in recruiting and enrolling children in the clinical vaccine trial down to age six months. The total trial enrollment has been completed, uh, but we're now waiting for the rest of the antibody response data from the blood testing that's done in those immunized to be finished and analyzed. And once that's done, um, Pfizer will certainly be pulling together an emergency use authorization packet for submission to the FDA. It's likely that will 1st happen for the 2 to 5 year old group, just because that group is really good. 4 to 6 weeks ahead of the 6 month to 2 year old group in the clinical trials. Um, and then to follow in a wave sort of is the, the data for the younger kids. And as we, um, as we gain more information about the safety profile. And the immunogenicity profile of that 3 microgram dose, right? This is one tenth of the adult dose. We're studying in the under 5 year olds. Then I think that the FDA will be eager to evaluate its safety profile and how well it's working.
0: Thank you for taking time to talk about this. My guest has been Dr. Joe Domikowski, a professor of pediatrics and microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.